This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 8, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. It's an opportunity to begin to put at least some of the onus of regulating back onto Congress. And no, it's not Congress that's doing it. Will Yateman is a research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. He details the new case before the U.S. Supreme Court that may establish that there are some powers that Congress can't easily delegate away. Congress has a job to do. They pass laws. They conduct oversight. They uh, are supposed to keep a tight grip on the executive branch, at least uh, when you read the structure of the Constitution. If Congress wanted to uh, give the president a WeWork space and sell the White House, they could do that. Um, But the administrative agencies of the executive branch have grown so large and unwieldy and largely it's Congress's fault, right? Indeed. And the problem here would be Congress's set it and forget it approach to domestic policymaking. And and by this, I mean, um, rather than take on difficult decisions itself, Congress over the last hundred years has, in essence, granted these broad delegations is what they're known as of authority, of of law-making authority to an alphabet soup worth of regulatory agencies. Um, And again, the impetus here has always been uh, passing the buck, um, uh, avoiding responsibility for big decisions, uh, requiring regulatory agencies to take them on. And then when they disagree with the agency, the lawmaker can say, aha, I mean, you know, we've got, uh, you know, this is regulatory power run amok. And when they agree with the agency, they can crow about it to their constituents. Right. So in the particular example of the EPA, the statute doesn't go that much further than the agency shall make the air clean. Indeed. And so that's the initial problem is these capacious delegations. So setting aside the pass bucking or the buck passing impetus for these things, um, what they've done, really it's engendered two big practical problems. Um, and the first is that these delegations of authority are so broad that agencies can get creative through interpretation, through statutory interpretation, and thereby endow themselves with regulatory power that Congress had expressly denied. Um, And there's all sorts of examples to this end. Uh, I'll name one, um, and that's net neutrality. Um, You know, I won't discuss what the policy entails. I will note that it's a big deal. And it's a policy that Congress repeatedly has considered and refused to enact legislation to this end, Um, notwithstanding the fact that Congress refused to do it. During the Obama administration, during his second term, uh, the president, President Obama, issued this executive order uh, asking the FCC, the Federal Communications uh, uh, Commission, to please adopt a rule requiring net neutrality. Um, And the agency did so. Um, So we've got this weird dynamic, and it's all too common, whereby a regulatory agency, often at the behest of the president, achieves major legislation that Congress had just demurred on. And it's interesting. It's interesting in particular when Congress considers and then chooses not to legislate. It's not like it's a, it's a matter where Congress has been silent. Exactly. 
And to be sure, we're not supposed to, we as lawyers, don't read too much into congressional silence. However, the political point is pretty darn loud and clear. And that is if our lawmakers deliberate on something for years um, and don't do it, then it doesn't make much sense that a regulatory agency acting upon an 80-year-old grant of authority um, can achieve the same result. So let's talk about West Virginia v. EPA. What are the questions that led up to this? And what is the question in this case? Well, it's an example of what we just spoke of, or really this phenomenon of of Congress considering something, not doing it, and then agencies doing it. Um, So specifically, uh, in the 111th Congress, this is in uh, 2011, a cap-and-trade, a nationwide cap-and-trade program to mitigate climate change passed the House of Representatives um, and ultimately foundered in the Senate. Well, a couple years later, during Obama during Obama's second term, um, the EPA issued this clean power plan, which ultimately would have entailed an EPA-administered nationwide cap-and-trade of the sort that Congress had just declined. Um, So what was the basis for this major policy? It was this obscure provision of the Clean Air Act. Uh, This is Section 111. And uh, this had been used uh, a handful of times in the previous 45 years uh, to regulate, for example, fertilizer plants or or paper mills. Um, So this obscure provision that indeed is ambiguous uh, was effectively leveraged by the EPA into this powerhouse um, of statutory authority. And again, that's that's very much in line with uh, the problem with these capacious delegations that we were talking about before. Um, so this rule comes out. Of course, Obama's successor, President Trump, has entirely different values. His administration immediately repeals the rule and replaces it with something far less onerous. Um, And in doing so, the Trump administration reasoned that, hey, the Clean Air Act, this, this rarely used obscure provision, clearly does not give the agency the authority to regulate the electricity grid in one fell swoop. Um, As always with these things, the Trump rule was challenged. Um, And the D.C. Circuit ultimately um, rejected the Trump administration's reasoning. And uh, the the D.C. Circuit, it's uh, very much condoned um, what I had set forth earlier as a problem, this of these capacious delegations that give too much leeway to these agencies. For the D.C. Circuit, that was a solution. I mean, the court in effect said – hey, we've got an ambiguous provision, we've got a major problem, climate change. Uh, Given these factors, we construe the statute as requiring the EPA to go large. Red states, conservative states, if you will, and industry subsequently sought Supreme Court review of the D.C. Circuit's decision, and recently the Supreme Court agreed to do so. All right, so we have a Supreme Court that has... uh reined in uh, a couple of different kinds of deference, uh, Chevron deference and our deference. Chevron deference, of course, is how administrative agencies uh, interpret statutes for the purposes of creating regulations. Our deference is how is court judicial deference 
to agencies when they interpret their own rules. And the, the Supreme Court has sort of hemmed that in, boxed it in, in a way. But this seems to be a much more core question. Indeed. So what you're getting at is that there's many ways to skin the cat of reining in the administrative state when it comes to these judicial doctrines. And the Supreme Court is, is advancing or considering many of these doctrines. Um, we're getting to one of the most important. And this is this nascent so-called major questions doctrine. Um, and the court has hinted at this in a number of prior cases, but it's never really been front and center. And the reasoning here is to uh, is to basically take on directly these capacious delegations that we were speaking of earlier. Uh, the rule of this major questions doctrine is that Congress cannot delegate, cannot grant major policymaking authority to regulatory agencies unless it's clear, um, un unless the Congress is express. Um, so uh, uh, this major questions doctrine was in fact the lead argument of the states and industry and nonprofits that challenged the D.C. Circuit Court's ruling. Um, and I'll say this, the D.C. Circuit's its, it's thinking here um, could be construed as the anti-major questions doctrine. I mean, in essence, the, the lower court, the D.C. Circuit Court was here, here was saying, um, because the statute is ambiguous, because we've got a big problem, uh, the ambigu ambiguity uh, uh, confers power, uh, even more power. Um, so uh, we've really got a conflict, if you will, between what the D.C. Circuit was thinking and what the Supreme Court has hinted at. And by taking this case, um, this conflict's going to come to a head. Now, uh, when courts defer to Congress, um, which they do regularly on matters that they, they say these are political questions. Uh, but when it comes to interpreting what Congress's job is versus an executive branch agency, that seems like a question that is should be squarely before the court. Oh, to be sure. I mean, so uh, I can't imagine arguing otherwise. And, and you hint at the stakes here. Um, so I'll note in the immediate term, the Biden administration's regulatory authority under the Clean Air Act uh, to mitigate climate change is very much front and center. Um, but in the longer term, you're, you're getting at the, the broader consequences. And that is agencies in the future, were the court to uh, uh, reverse the D.C. Circuit on the grounds of this major questions doctrine, then in the future, regulatory agencies perhaps will be reluctant to invest the resources necessary to bang out one of these major rules when the basis is, uh, you know, ambiguous and rarely used statutory provisions. And on the other hand, and this is getting directly to your questions, it will compel Congress in the future to be more specific, which is something, uh, uh, gosh, I, I, I think we should all be able to agree upon. Um, when I was setting forth earlier the big problem with these capacious delegations, I omitted mention of perhaps the biggest problem, and that's that these statutory provisions are so imprecise, are so broad, that Republican and Democrat presidents can come to diametrically opposite policies 
based on the same ambiguous statutory language in succession. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing as we go from Obama to Trump to Biden, this wholesale flip-flopping of policies major and minor across the board with the administrative state. And and this is, you know, the the, – the essence of regulatory uncertainty. I mean, this is no way to run a country. So to the extent that the Supreme Court gives teeth to this major questions doctrine, it could be a powerful um, mechanism to moderate these uh, harmful policy swings that occur every four to eight years when the White House changes party hands. So with respect to rulemaking in the future, uh, you know, there's this old line, uh, a husband and wife are talking to somebody and she says to the she's it's a therapist or somebody and says, well, I let him handle all the big decisions and I handle all the small decisions. And thankfully, we've never had to make a big decision. And it seems to me that uh, agencies might seek to define their future rulemaking as not major questions. These are not big questions. And that seems to, you know, they're trying to get the jello. <laughs> the jello goes where it's going to go. Um, it, it, it seems like that may be a possible side effect if the court says, no, you, the, you're a regulatory agency. You can't be deciding these major questions. Very much so. I mean, again, that was on the one hand, it gives Congress an incentive to be more precise. But on the other hand, it's going to give agencies in the future, were the Supreme Court to come out this way, pause um, before it tries to impose nationwide major policy that Congress had just rejected um, on the basis, you know, on the flimsy basis of these rarely used, obscure, ambiguous statutory provisions. For Congress, this arguably makes their job harder. It imposes a kind of accountability, if you will, onto members of Congress for actually sitting down and dealing with major policy questions that largely have been delegated away. Yes. I mean, and that is the way the system is supposed to work. I mean, it, it is not, it does not comport with the spirit of the Constitution for Congress to pass the buck to these, what really are constitutional abominations. I mean, these administrative agencies house the executive, legislative, and judicial functions under one roof. I mean, that's, uh, that's antithetical to our you know, notions of checks and balances and whatnot. When do we expect the court to uh, hear this and perhaps rule on it? A briefing will be uh, is due through December. Um, there should be oral arguments soon thereafter, and I would expect a decision um, in the spring and summer of 2022. Will Yateman is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.